three chapters, yes, three chapters, that we're going to be talking about this morning from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 47 through 49, because we're entering at this point in the story of Joseph, 17 years, really of benediction, of blessing that God is pouring upon him and through Joseph upon, well, really all the way down to us. And so I wonder if you've ever wondered what it really means to be blessed by God. What really does it mean to be blessed by God? Or maybe another question that's even more important is what does it take to get in position to receive that blessing? Hey, I really want to be blessed by God, but how do we get there? Where do we begin? What does it take to get in the right place so that somehow I'm where God can bless me? They're pretty important questions. Uh, Really, they're essential. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, it's a verse you probably know well. Solomon writes, the blessing of the Lord makes rich. And get this, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Or as another way of translating that reads, and toil, what you do, toil, adds nothing to it. So no sorrow and you can't do anything to add to it. It's so complete. It's so full. It's so rich. It's so deep. This blessing of God that you can't do anything to make it any better. Who doesn't want to be blessed by God? Who doesn't want to experience the riches and fullness of what it means to be in God's favor? Really, if we were going to put it another way, you'll never really be satisfied in life, no matter how rich you are, if you are not blessed by God. And conversely, you will be really satisfied in life, no matter what your material state, if you are blessed by God. And no amount of labor or toil can produce this blessing. This ultimate satisfaction comes only from God. Either he gives it to us, or we don't get it. We're going to look this morning at these last several chapters of the book of Genesis, all except for chapter 50. We're saving that for next week. And we're brought in these three chapters face to face with blessing, this whole idea. In fact, if I were to choose just one word that captured the sum of these three chapters together, it would be the word blessing. I think you'd be hard-pressed to pick a word that is a better description for these chapters together. Blessings really given from the bounty of God's measureless supply. Blessings received and enriching God's people for generations to come. That's Genesis chapter 47 through 49 in a nutshell. But I'm not letting you go home yet. I want us to pray. And I want us to pray that God would in fact, get this, that he would bless us here this morning. And so let's bow our heads together and I ask you to join me as we pray to our Heavenly Father. But while your heads are bowed and before you actually begin praying, I want to remind you of a story of blessing. I want you to think of it with your eyes closed, if you would, and your mind on 
things above. Story when Jacob, the precursor to this story and a vital part of these three chapters of Genesis, when Jacob met God in the night as he was going to meet his brother Esau. And there he wrestled with God through the dark hours of night alone. And at the end of that time, he really sought only one thing. When the day had broken and after a whole night of sleeplessness, a night of fierce struggle, he said this, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I will not let you go. He said this to God. I will not let you go unless you bless me. So, Father, I think that I tend to treat blessing as one of those nice add-ons to life, something that's nice to have. It might spell a good night's sleep, or it might mean that I have enough to pay my bills. But somehow I miss the baseline idea that this is absolutely essential, that without it I cannot live. I cannot go on. I cannot be victorious. I cannot do what I'm supposed to do in the kingdom of God. And this morning, your blessing is essential for us right here. We can hear the words of your word. We can together contemplate the meaning and the nuances of what takes place in these three chapters. But if you don't bless us, if you don't bless us, we've missed the very baseline that we must have or die. We must have you bless us. We plead with you to bless us. By your Holy Spirit, come now and bless us. Bring us into connection with you in a way maybe that we, maybe we've never been before. And in a way that we most certainly need to be brought again into contact with you, our God, through your word. Please, we pray, bless us. We will not let you go. We will not let you go. We will not let you go until you do. Bless us this morning, we pray for Jesus sake. Amen. If you want to take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 47, well, let's back up and actually start in 46 this morning. I want to remind you of where we've been, Genesis chapter 46. We're really entering this happiest, richest of seasons in the life of Joseph. And it begins with Jacob going to Egypt. Remember that uh, Egypt was the place of, of failure for Jacob's grandfather. It was the place that his father was forbidden to go. Isaac was forbidden to go to Egypt. More than that, it was the place of prophecy. You might remember that in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13 in the, what we call Abrahamic covenant, God said these words to Abraham, looking forward to this day, when Jacob would make his journey to Egypt. And this is what he said. God said this to Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. 
could, could we start over on that? Your offspring will be sojourners. What's a sojourner? They didn't own it, right? They were just traveling through. They were people who lived in a land, but they didn't own the land. They were strangers. They were foreigners. They were people who really, in one sense, didn't belong. They're going to be sojourners, God promises Abraham. What a promise, right? Boy, this is getting off to a good start. You're going to have your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And not only are they going to be sojourners, but they're going to be servants there. Read that, slaves. They're going to be slaves in this land where they're sojourning and don't own a thing, as far as the land is concerned. And not only are they going to be sojourners, and not only are they going to be servants or slaves, but they're going to be there in that land where they're sojourning. They're going to be afflicted for 400 years. That's the Abrahamic covenant. What a promise. That's it, right there. Bad circumstances are coming, God says. And in one sense, looking at it from that perspective, there are really poor chances for the success of God's chosen family. But God didn't end right there. And, and that's a great thing. He goes on to say, but. So they will be servants. They're going to be afflicted. They're going to be sojourners. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Do you think Jacob knew this promise? Yes, he did. Absolutely he did. This was the promise that had been given to Abraham, his grandfather, repeated to Isaac, his father, and had been repeated to Jacob himself. Jacob knew this promise. So when he headed to Egypt, he knew what was coming. And so you may remember from last week that God made special care to say to Jacob, do not be afraid. In the beginning of chapter 46... Genesis chapter 46, he says, God spoke to Israel, verse 2, in visions of the night, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And we talked about some of the amazing things that God promised. They're all based on his character. The things that he would do for, jo for Jacob as he went down to a place where affliction was certain to follow. But following the affliction, a great nation. God said, I'm going to go with you. And your end is going to be good because Joseph, your beloved son, whom you've not seen for 22 years, this Joseph, will be the one to perform that beautiful, final rite of love for you. He will close your eyes. So Jacob set out for Egypt. And it says then Joseph, in chapter 46, toward the end of the chapter, then Joseph went up to meet his father in Goshen. He prepared his chariot. He presented himself to his father Jacob and fell on his neck and wept on his neck. A good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. I think it's hard to make too much of this relationship between Jacob and his son Joseph. For all of the crazy things that have been a part of Jacob's past, for his favoritism and his deception and his sins and his, and his personal incongruities, he really genuinely loved this son 
he genuinely loved Joseph. In fact, the Bible tells us that he grieved Joseph's loss. He grieved Joseph's loss for 22 years. It says in chapter 37 that Jacob, when he heard of the, well, they deceived him and told him the animals had eaten Joseph, but when he heard that tale that the brothers told, he tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. I'll meet him in death. Thus his father wept for him. And again, it says in chapter 44, in verse 27 to 29, you know my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one, Benjamin, also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. And again in chapter 45 and verse 28, he says he desires just one thing, only one thing, before he dies. It is enough, he says, hearing of Joseph being alive. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. For Joseph to take care of him at his death was his great comfort. I'm going to die in Joseph's presence. You know, every time that Jacob really looked at Joseph, he saw probably two very important things that might resonate with some of you parents. First of all, he saw the boy he loved because he was the son of his old age. Perhaps he expected that he would be his last son. He was the son of his wife who was barren. And he was the son of his beloved wife, really probably in the greatest sense of the word, the only woman that Jacob ever really loved. This was her son. So when he looked at him, at Joseph, we know that Joseph was a handsome man from what we're told in his interactions with Potiphar's wife. And so it's likely that Joseph possessed something of his mother's beauty in masculine form. He and Benjamin, Joseph and Benjamin, were like living links to the memory of that one woman that Jacob had really loved. So when they wept upon each other, this, the ruler of Egypt and the patriarch of the people of God, they were at their deepest essence a father and a son long presumed dead but now found alive and thriving. It's, it's, an, it's a story of phenomenal pathos. And it's really on this kind of pathos, this kind of emotional depth, that Jesus builds another story that you may remember with a father and a son and a deep emotional bond in the New Testament. It's the story of the prodigal son. While he was still a long way off, Jesus says, telling the story in Luke chapter 15, his father Simon felt compassion on him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, the father said, and, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and let us kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's like a parallel to the story, but an exact reverse, right? Because in the story of the prodigal, the son returned to the father having sinned. In this case, the father goes to the son who had not sinned. But the pathos, the emotional depth you can feel as Jesus builds straight out of that same idea, the sense of a father and a son long 
presumed dead. He was dead, said the father in Luke, but he's alive again. I've looked for stories in history that might parallel this because it seems like there's got to be some. And I've got to be honest, I haven't found really good parallels in history. They're not worth spending a lot of time on. There are stories of soldiers that have been found MIA. They were MIA for many years. There's one of a story, story of a soldier from Vietnam who was missing for 44 years and forgot his sons and daughters, and he didn't even remember his own birthday. But you don't get the sense of the emotional pathos of a reunion between a father and a son. It was emotional. They found this man after 44 years living in Vietnam. And, but it wasn't the same kind of depth. There, there's another story of a, of a Japanese soldier who was out on one of the islands in the Philippines. And in 1974, this hero, Onada, he came out of hiding because he'd been thinking the war was still on. And he laid down his rifle and wept. He didn't know the war had been over for 29 years. There's a lot of pathos in that, but it's not the same thing as coming a son gone and assumed dead for 22 years, now meets his father and he's alive, and he's not only alive, but he is the lord of the land. So if this Vietnamese soldier, uh, excuse me, American soldier living in Vietnam had suddenly risen somehow in the darkness of lack of communication between two foreign countries, had risen to be president of Vietnam, or dictator, or whatever they have. That would be a little more like it if he'd then met his father. Or if this Japanese soldier had been living in the Philippines and had become the prime minister of the entire nation. But we don't have stories that are quite a parallel to it. At least I haven't been able to find them. This is something that is unimaginable. Think of it. A son considered dead 22 years. Dad hears. No wonder Joseph is, Jacob is saying at the, when his sons, his very honest sons, of course, are telling him, Jacob, Joseph is alive and he's Lord of Egypt. Yeah, right. Sure. Egypt, the big superpower? No, I don't think so. Not only that, Joseph? Joseph, Joseph, yeah, right. I saw, I saw the robe that was stained with blood. I heard your story. 22 years, guys. Really? 22 years? But finally he believes him, as you may remember from last week, and he sees all the good things, the donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and the wagons prepared to carry Jacob and his family back to that land, and he, and he believes him, and he goes. He goes to the place that had been failure for his grandfather and forbidden to his father. But he goes because God says, I'll go with you and I'll go with you that this, my word, might be truly fulfilled. Joseph was really everything that Jacob could want a son to be. He was true, he was honest, he was pure and wholesome, he was generous and wise. He was untainted by the ugly stain of bitterness in, in one word, really, Joseph was blessed by God. And we see that happening through the story to this point. Uh, Genesis chapter 39, verses 2 through 3, it says of Joseph, the Lord is with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. That's the blessing of God. Chapter 39, verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. That's the blessing of God. Chapter 41, verse 38, 
Pharaoh says, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? That's the blessing of God. Chapter 45 and verse 8, God, it says, had made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house, ruler over all the land of Egypt. That's the blessing of God. And clear over to the New Testament, as Stephen is telling this at his own execution in chapter 7 and verses 9 through 10 of the book of Acts, Stephen reports, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. That's the blessing of God. It's pretty essential. So that means that we have a man who could go to a foreign place as a slave, sold into slavery by his own brothers, with a background of a terribly fragmented, broken up family, lost his mother when he was a boy, yeah, he had the whole thing stacked against him. But he could go there and with just one thing succeed. Everything was against Joseph. Everything was against Joseph except one thing. He was blessed by God. That's how critical it is. He had God. And God was all he needed. Now it's interesting if you were to take Joseph's life and spread it out on a timeline. That God has this wonderful sense of poetic repetition going here in the story. You might remember some of the ages that Joseph was. We've talked about those things. How old was he, guys, when he was sold into slavery? 17. And at this point, he's 39. He's 22 years in the land of Egypt. He's 17 years in the land of Canaan under his father's care and protection. 22 years in the land of Egypt, unknown by his father and considered dead. And now we enter a period of 17 years. Yeah, 17 years with his father under his care in the land of Egypt. Why did God do all that? I'm not exactly sure, but he loves beauty and poetry and symmetry and glory. So he gave Jacob 17 beautiful years experiencing the love of the son he'd long lost. And Joseph, the opportunity to love his father Really, there are three basic blessings that we're going to look at here this morning as we consider these three chapters, 47 through 49, just three. We could look at these chapters much, much more. We could look at them in many different ways. And I want you to understand as we launch into these three particular blessings, I want you to understand that this is not an entire discussion of the, of the whole concept of the theology of blessing. That would be a wonderful thing to do. But we don't have time this morning. And we're really looking at blessing within the context of the story of the life of Joseph. So bear with me. And we're going to look at just three of these this morning. And the first of them is really the blessing of Pharaoh by the sojourner. I want you to look down at chapter 47, if you will. If you have your Bibles open. In chapter 47, and in verses 7 through 10, this is what it says. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And... Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Now I want you to think of a scene. 
get the characters in your mind, okay? So here we have Pharaoh, ruler of the most powerful nation on the earth and supposed to be deity. We're in his throne room right now. Can you get there in your head? We're in the throne room of the most powerful king in the world. He's sitting on his throne. And we have before him Jacob. He's 130 years old. He is dim in his physical powers, and he's very far from home if he's ever had a home. He's a sojourner. He's always been a sojourner. He's lived in tents. He is in need. That's why he's there. Why is he in Egypt? There's famine in the land, and he doesn't have food. He's in need, and he's totally dependent on his son in a completely foreign land with strange customs and strange language and strange gods. Okay, you there? You in, you in the throne room? We have Pharaoh on his throne. Most powerful man in the world. We have Jacob, 130 years old. You hear how it reads here at the beginning. Jacob brought ja Joseph brought Jacob, his father, in and stood him before Pharaoh. You get the sense for it? He's needing help, right? Jacob is 130 years old. He's weak. He's frail. He doesn't see real well. And Jacob presumes to bless Pharaoh? No, 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 no. That's exactly wrong. That's totally wrong. The idea is Pharaoh is going to bless Jacob. That's what really should be happening. In fact, isn't that what is happening here? But, but wait, it says two times that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Verse 7, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Again, down a few verses further in verse 10, Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. It never says that Pharaoh blessed Jacob, but Jacob, sure enough, blessed Pharaoh. It's interesting, especially given the idea that we find in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter in Hebrews chapter 6 I believe it is excuse me it's it's uh, yeah it's Hebrews chapter is it Hebrews chapter 6 no, I'm lost anyway in Hebrews it says in the story of Melchizedek the king blessing Abraham do you remember what the principle of blessing is this is really important we'll get to it in a minute I'll find it in the notes it says the Greater blesses the lesser, to put it in just simple terms. The greater blesses the lesser. So do you understand what's happening in the throne room as you're gathered with us and with Jacob and with Joseph and Pharaoh? This is an assertion of who is greater. Who's greater? Wait a minute, this frail 130-year-old man who is standing before the most powerful man in the world is greater than this lord of the land? Jacob's answer is really significant. He says, I'm a sojourner and I have been all of my life. Here's Pharaoh established and settled in his city, ensconced in a kingdom with Joseph, Jacob. Always a wanderer, always looking for something he never had. He never really had a home for Jacob. It was really a lifelong camping event. You've been camping? Think of camping all your life. That's what he did. He lived in tents. Almost all his life. And he was also old, 130. But he wasn't as old as he wanted to be. And you can hear him complaining a little bit about that here. He says, I'm not as old as my father's. Well, in one sense, that's true. If you trace it back, 
Isaac, his father, died at 180. Abraham died at 175. Terah, his, his great-grandfather, died at 205. And you can trace back a few more generations. Shem died at 600 and a few more generations back. And people often live to 900. I'm not as old as I want to be, but I'm old enough. And he says, not only were my days few, but my days are evil. Again, this is painting the wrong picture for blessing the most powerful man in the world. My days are evil. And you can trace that through his life in a lot of different ways. He fled from Esau. He was deceived by Laban. He, he fled Laban and he feared Esau. He was lamed by God at Peniel. He was made to stink in the whole land when his sons killed off all the males. In fact, all the people of Shechem after they had defiled Dinah, his daughter, Rachel died in childbirth with Benjamin. Reuben was immoral with his concubine. Joseph was lost and presumed dead for 22 years. Few and evil, says Jacob, have been the days of the years of my life. But Jacob still blessed Pharaoh. So how could this frail old sojourner, whose life was filled with evil, whose days he considered to be few, bless the most powerful man in the world? It's Hebrews chapter 7. That I was looking for. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 7. It is beyond dispute, says the writer of the book of Hebrews, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So now, wait a minute. Again, carry that back to the throne room. The inferior is blessed by the... That means Pharaoh is the inferior because Jacob is claiming by blessing him that he is the superior. What audacity possessed Jacob to bless the king of Egypt? Well, let me show you a little bit about what it means to be blessed. And, and really here it's helpful to draw a little distinction between blessing and well-wishing. Well-wishing is really expressing benevolent thoughts based on personal sentiment and desires for good for another person. So it would be a little bit like saying, I see you've got a cold and I hope you feel better soon. That's well-wishing, right? And it's nice. It's, it's kind of the social grease that makes us work together without a lot of friction and rubbing. I'm glad when people want good things for me. That's very nice. Or it might even be like um, in the old times when you would meet a sovereign, a king, and they would say, oh, king, live forever. But you know he's not going to live forever because no kings live forever. So that's just well-wishing. It's a nice idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no king lives forever. So, oh, king, live forever. It's just well-wishing. But blessing is very different. Blessing invokes God and his authority to do for someone what they cannot do for themselves. Get that? It invokes God and his authority to do for someone what they cannot do for themselves. So in, sense, in a sense, when Jacob blesses Pharaoh, he is asserting his connection with God and his divine authority. Really, this is, in a sense, Jacob's testimony in the highest place, in the highest land in the world. Why could he bless Pharaoh? Because he knew the king of kings and was directly connected to him. Whatever your place in life, however low or high you may be, this is your one source of blessing, your only source. There is no other place to go for true blessing than God himself. He is the authority on which any true blessing, from which any true blessing must flow. So in a sense, he's saying this. I know the one true and living God, and because I know him, and because he has blessed me, I have 
the authority to bless you. So that's the first thing. That's the first blessing we're going to look at here. The blessing of the sojourner to Pharaoh, the highest governor in all the lands of all the world, the king. And that principle that we want to draw out here is that our authority to bless and our capacity to be blessed is based on one thing only. Here it is. Are you connected to the king of kings? That's it. So that's the sojourner's blessing. And we turn over in chapter 48 to another blessing. The blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh by the patriarch. So... It's important to remember that the famine at this point in time is continuing in the land. Uh, it's getting greater and greater in its severity. And Joseph has at this point bought the livestock and the private property from all the Egyptians in exchange for food. And they said, that's fine with us. Take our lands, take our bodies, they said. We have to have food or we cannot live. But Joseph's own family the sojourners in the land, didn't have any land to sell. And so, since they didn't own land, well, it couldn't be taken from them. And so they lived on as guests of the king of Egypt in the best of the land. In fact, they prospered, and they were growing on that rented land. They were fruitful, and they multiplied greatly, we're told, in Genesis chapter 47 and verse 27. So chapter 48 opens up with a messenger coming and announcing that Jacob is ill. It says in verse 1, after this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took him with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. And Israel, that's Jacob, summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, and here he repeats the Abrahamic covenant, which was repeated to Isaac and has been repeated to Jacob. God Almighty appeared to me, verse 3, at Luz in the land of Canaan, and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful, and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now, says Jacob to Joseph, with his two sons standing next to him, Ephraim and Manasseh, And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. I'm going to adopt them. They will be just as Reuben and Simeon are my sons. He goes on to say, the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They'll be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came, but, but these two, these two shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. So these two, Ephraim and Manasseh, will be my sons. They will be listed along with Reuben and Simeon in the great inheritance of the children of God. Jacob is 147 years old now. 17 years have gone by and his being cared for by his son that once was presumed dead. Don't you wonder about the talks they had? It must have been interesting to hear the story unfold as they talked about what had taken place in those 17 years. What happened at home, Dad? And how did things go in Egypt? And I don't know. It would be fascinating. We don't know that, but we can only imagine that they must have had some discussion of the things that had taken place. And, and here, Jacob, in chapter 48, recounts the blessing of God to him and passes that blessing on to Ephraim and to Manasseh. Just like Isaac before him, he couldn't see. And so when the boys come with Joseph, he actually asks, who are these? Just like 
Isaac had once said, who are you, my son, to Jacob? Boy, it's interesting to feel the generations play, isn't it? Jacob deceived his father, Isaac, and said, oh, I'm Esau, your son. I've just come from the field. But now, no, no deception. Joseph announces, this is Ephraim, and this is Manasseh. And interestingly, you'll remember that Jacob here crosses his hands to bless the boys, deliberately putting Ephraim before Manasseh, though Manasseh was the firstborn son. And here is how he blessed them. In verse 15, it says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. God of my fathers, says Jacob, this God, he is the God of the covenant the God who is my shepherd. He's the God who meets all my needs and has met all my needs. An interesting statement, by the way, from a man who had been a shepherd all of his life. This is the God of, who has shepherded me. Remember, he was the son of a shepherd. He was the grandson of a shepherd. He had married a shepherdess. His life was built entirely on shepherding as an occupation. He knew what it was to be a shepherd. And he says, I who understand what it means to be a shepherd say, God is my shepherd. And he has shepherded me all of my life. He was a pretty good shepherd too, by the way. If you look back at the story of how Jacob interacted with Laban. I'm not sure I understand all those details of what he did. But it sure turned out as a pretty great flock of sheep. He was a good shepherd. He knew how to care for his sheep. In a sense, this is Jacob's own assertion, like David would later say, the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk in the middle of the, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup is running over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever, a shepherd's psalm. And this is Jacob's own shepherd's song. God has been my shepherd. I know what it is to care for sheep. I know what it is to be a sheep. And I know what it is to have a shepherd. So God who has been the God of the covenant, the God of my fathers, I'm connecting upline to Abraham and the covenant given to him. I'm connecting to my father Isaac and the covenant given to him. This, the God of my fathers, is also the God who is my shepherd. The God of my fathers, the God of the covenant, is my shepherd. But he says even more, this is God who is my redeemer. This is God who is my redeemer from all evil. Few and evil said Jacob just 17 years before this. 17 years before he said in the presence of Pharaoh in that first blessing, few and evil have been the days of the years of my sojourning. I've had a life that is short and ugly. That's what he said. But out of all that, God had redeemed him. Yes, out of all of the ugly, distressing parts of Jacob's life, God had redeemed him. He'd taken care of him as a shepherd. He had done what he promised he would do by covenant. God had redeemed him. He rescued him and brought him back from every evil as he alone could do. 
he actually even used the evil to do Jacob good. Just think of it. Jacob would not be here in the land of Egypt if it were not for the evil of famine that God had brought upon the land. God used that evil to drive Jacob to find his long lost son. And more than that, to take the people of God to the very place where he would incubate a nation and build a people who 400 years later would come out as an entire nation separate from that nation, a people for God himself. God is my redeemer. God has been with Jacob and delivered him throughout his life. And now Jacob says to these boys, the God of the covenant, my shepherd and my redeemer, I know him. He's met every need of mine. He's even turned bad to good time after time after time in my experience. This God bless these two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. I adopt them as my own. And God, God grow them until their names are synonymous with blessing itself. Until they become a universal measure of the goodness of God. That's what it says here in verse 20. By you, Israel will pronounce blessings. By you who? Ephraim and Manasseh. By you, Israel will pronounce blessings. This nation which is just now being formed and being built. By you, this nation will pronounce blessings saying... God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. It's the highest blessing that, he could, that they could even possibly imagine. If you want to be something great, you want to be like Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's two boys whom I've adopted. God bless you. And what God, the God of the covenant, my shepherd and my redeemer, he will be this to you. This is the God who will bless you. Can you feel Jacob invoking the authority of God here to bless these boys? Let me read it one more time for you. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. This is verse 15 of chapter 48. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from evil. Bless the boys and in them let my name be carried on. Make them a part of this very intricate covenant. And the name of my fathers Isaac, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. But that's not the only blessing. There's one more. And it's the blessing of Joseph by his father. Now, it's a pretty big blessing to have your sons blessed in this way. To have them brought into the 12 tribes of Israel directly. Not as grandsons, but as sons. That's a pretty amazing blessing. But there's this blessing added to it. If you look over in chapter 49... There are a whole series of prophetic blessings on the sons of Jacob as Jacob is prepared to die. He says, gather yourselves together, verse 1 of chapter 49, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And then he goes on, and he has some good things to say and some bad things to say. It's interesting for a study. At some point, it would be nice to go over to Deuteronomy where Moses takes this same theme of prophetic blessings and iterates them slightly differently on the tribes of Israel. But for this morning, let me just say that 
Jacob begins at the oldest of his sons and walks through each one, issuing a prophetic statement and sometimes a blessing. And we get down to verse 22 and we see his statement for Joseph. Let me read it to you in verse 22 of chapter 49. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. You can kind of hear the history of, of Joseph's life being retold by his father in prophetic form, describing what had happened, describing what would yet happen as he was blessed. He's saying, in a sense, you've borne fruit and you've stood firm even though you were hated because God has helped you and he will help you. He will bless you with the riches of heaven and earth. The one who has provided for his family in Egypt will now be provided in the future by God with abundance. And you're going to be blessed with the riches of sons and daughters. The one who is set apart from his family, who is made to live alone, will be surrounded by God with family in the future. Pretty great blessings. But there's one more blessing that actually happens before this particular blessing in the life of Joseph. If you look back at chapter 48, at the conclusion in verse 21 of chapter 48, Israel said to Joseph, he's blessed Ephraim and Manasseh, and he says, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Now listen to this. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Remember that Jacob was a sojourner. Sojourners owned how much land? Well, almost none. In this case, he owned just a little bit. And it was a little bit that he owned because he had fought the Amorites for it personally. He went to battle. Jacob went to battle in some form or fashion. We aren't told the story. There's dispute over exactly what this was that took place. He owned one piece of land. And he said, this precious little piece of property is yours, my son. I give it to you. What land really is less significant than the fact that it was land given by a sojourner to a sojourning son? A land that was specifically Joseph's by inheritance. And he says very specifically, not his brothers. This is just for you, Joseph. Boy, it has echoes back to a coat, doesn't it? That one multicolored or variegated coat that was given by the father Jacob to his son Joseph long, long before. That fire of love for this father and this son had never died. And he says, I have one love gift for you. Joseph, whose suffering and afflictions left an indelible mark on his soul, was given the satisfaction 
of something even greater than just the fulfillment of his dream that he would be his family's ruler. He was loved. He was loved by his father. Here Jacob did not bow to Joseph, but Joseph bowed to him, and he received the blessing, the simple blessing of his father's love and favor, and here it is, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. I love you, my son. We talked last week about the fact that these dreams all center around Egypt. We have Abraham's dream pointing to Egypt being the place where the people would go and suffer affliction. We have Joseph's dream, which led them eventually to that land where they would fall down, his family would fall down, and do reverence to him. We have Pharaoh's dream, which was what immediately precipitated the people coming to Egypt because there was famine in the land. And we have Jacob's own dream saying, do not be afraid, go. But I want you to understand that this was not merely the dream nexus like we looked at last week. This was really the blessing nexus. It was each one of these promises pointing to what God would do to bless his people. It was blessing in hard ways, right? Abraham would receive a land, but it was through suffering. Joseph would receive dominion, but through slavery. Pharaoh would receive provision, but through famine. Jacob would receive rest, but it was in the middle of his fears, right through his fears. So one thing we certainly can't say about blessing is that blessing means we will not encounter difficulties in life. God wants to bless us. He wants us to be in the place where we can be blessed. But that blessing does not mean that we will not have difficulties or troubles or struggles. But God would bless them. And he'd bless them in a way that all their efforts could never achieve and all of their combined resources could never afford. He would make them rich in a way that met their deepest needs and satisfied their deepest longings. And all this was really based on the promises of God. It was based on his covenants to bless them. To bless them with things that they could not ever buy themselves. In Genesis chapter 22, we read a reiteration of that covenant of blessing to Abraham in verses 15 through 18. This is after Abraham has gone to Mount Moriah and there prepared to offer his son Isaac. The angel of the Lord, it says in verse 15 of 22, called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And I think we could say that's great for them. They were the recipients of God's promises and his covenants and his blessings, but I haven't had a dream. <laughs> what are the promises I'm going to cling to? Where, where am I going to go with this? It's great that they were blessed. And it's even great, as you see in Genesis 22, that we get blessed through them, but what about me? How am I going to get into the place where I can be blessed by God. And I want to tell you that you have something even better than a dream. 
in the granddaddy of all these dreams, that Abrahamic covenant, God assured Abraham of the certainty of his promise by having Abraham bring a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And then Abraham cut the larger animals in half and laid them out opposing each other. And then he waited for night to fall. And while he was waiting, he beat off the birds of prey to keep them from eating the carcasses of animals that had been split, opened in preparation for something that was about to happen. And then he fell asleep. But it was an unnatural sleep that he fell into. It was unnaturally deep and the darkness was unnaturally dark. And in the midst of that unnaturally deep sleep, in that unnatural darkness, God spoke. And he made his promise to Abraham. And then to confirm the promise, God passed between the animal pieces as a smoking pot and a flaming torch. The carcasses of the animals and their spilled blood affirmed the seriousness with which God treated his promise. But can I tell you that God has cut a new covenant with us? A covenant confirmed not with the blood of animals, but with the blood of his own son. At that very first communion service, it was the Passover, and Jesus was celebrating it with his disciples just one more time before he went to the cross. At that first Lord's Supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And listen to what he said. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. It's my blood of promise. It's my blood of absolute certainty that I will bless. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And what is the blessing that he promises? What's the blessing that you can be sure to receive in this new covenant? It's his blood, which is poured out for many for the blessing of the forgiveness of sins. The, the forgiveness of sins. Even the Abrahamic covenant didn't go so far. And it was affirmed by a blood much greater than the blood of animals who shed their blood and whose lives were spent to affirm the seriousness of the covenant with Abraham. No, now it is the blood of a man and not the blood of any man but the blood of one man, the man Christ Jesus, who alone, who became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And he cuts covenant with us, and he says, put your lips to this cup of covenant. Join me, and I will bless you. I'll bless you. I will bless you forever with one very important thing. I will forgive your sins. Got any sins? Got any issues that you deal with? Perennial problems? Habits that are difficult to break? Things you've done wrong and nobody knows about? 
What about your past before you knew Jesus? Yeah, there's some things there too, aren't there? He says to you, partake with me. Drink my blood of the covenant. You want to be blessed by God? It's really pretty simple and pretty profound. You join God in the blood of his son and in no other way can we know the blessing of God. There's much more that we could say about the blessing of God. You notice in, in Genesis chapter 22, it's tied to obedience to God. Many other things we could discuss, but can we just say this very essential, fundamental thing this morning? If you're not in covenant with God, you can't be blessed by him. Every one of those that we've looked at this morning, especially Jacob and Ephraim and Manasseh and Joseph, were all participants together with the, in the blessing of God because God made them a promise. Have you valued the promise that God has made to you? He promises, come, drink this cup, and I will bless you in a way that no one else can with the authority and certainty of God himself. And then we get the chance to spread his covenant to others and to bless them by the authority of God. Would you bow with me as we conclude this morning in praying? 17 years of benediction. 17 years of God's blessing. But we have forever of God's blessing through Jesus. And this is what we're told in Hebrews chapter 13. It's the benediction with which I leave you this morning. It's a prayer. It's the blessing of God in the new covenant. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, this God equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever and ever, and ever.